Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with this promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Turn now to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Third reading is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone here uh, in church and online as well. 
Um, we are uh, coming to the end of this uh, short sermon series in Revelation. We're working through chapters 1 to 3 over the last eight weeks. Um, if you have been around, hopefully you've been following along. Otherwise, um, I guess it would be a good thing to go back and look at the previous six churches uh, prior to today, as well as chapter 1, which is the vision that was given to John, which sets up the, the, the scene for the whole book, uh, that grand picture of Jesus in chapter 1. Uh, after today, we'll be having the Easter weekend next week, which you've heard a lot about, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Um, please do join us for the services, uh, intimate setting on Friday, the big all-in gathering on Sunday, it'll be a great thing. And then we'll begin our new sermon series in the book of Job, coming up for six weeks. Uh, a lot of us think of Job, we think of suffering, uh, but Job actually has a lot more to say to us than just about suffering. It's just a lot to say to us about wisdom and how do we really know God uh, and know God's ways. So please uh, come along for that. Uh, we will pick up uh, the book of Revelation again in chapter 4 uh, after the series in Job. Uh, for today, uh, we are going to look at our last church in this uh, sermon series of seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So please keep your Bibles open to Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Uh, and if um, you uh, haven't already done so, there's an outline that's always available online on our church website, sle.church. You should be able to find a link, I think, sle.church slash live. There will always be a link to the latest bulletin. Uh, it will have the outline of the sermon. It may help you to follow along. Uh, but the most helpful thing we can do right now is to have our Bibles open in front of us and for us to pray uh, to God that He will speak to us by His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks uh, for you speak to us uh, so clearly and so powerfully. We thank you for the words of Jesus to the seven churches uh, back in Asia uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, words which every church of yours is to hear today. Uh, we pray that as we come to this last church this year, uh, you would stir us in, in us again uh, a longing for Jesus. Uh, may the warnings given to this year, may the the criticism, the, uh, the scolding that they're given uh, be something that we would respond to, uh, that we would um, uh, have ears to hear uh, what your Spirit has to say to us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I continue on, it feels like a refrigerator in here. Is that right? Is everyone cold or is it just me? Uh, perhaps we could uh, turn the fan speed lower. It sounds like it's blowing hard and maybe the temperature can change a little bit as well. Whew. All right, so uh, if you need to get up and do a few star jumps to get yourself warmed up, uh, please do so. Um, no? No takers? All right. Okay, we come to the final church in our series of these seven churches, and Jesus has saved the worst for last. Right? You don't usually save the worst for last, but Jesus has. Uh, and at, in this church, you'll notice that there's not one single good thing that Jesus says about the church. In his assessment of this church, there is not a single good thing. In fact, so foul is this church that Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth, right? I will spit you out of my mouth. It's, it's a very uh, unexpected thing for us to hear Jesus say. And we might wonder to ourselves, right, what's so bad, what's so disgusting about this church that would draw such a strong response from Jesus? And maybe we might expect that maybe they were steeped in satanic worship. Or maybe they were so severely wicked uh, and, and evil that, that Jesus would say such a thing. But as we read on, we realize that the problem in this year was self-sufficiency. Right? Self-sufficiency. And when you stop and think about that, you might think, self-sufficiency? Surely that isn't such a bad thing. In fact, self-sufficiency, isn't it something that we promote? 
Don't we want people to grow up and, and to be able to depend on themselves, to be independent? Right? We know that annoying, you know, a guy or girl who, who 25, 30, 35 years old is still leeching off the parents, living at home, being an adultescent. We don't like people who are not self-sufficient. We want people who will be uh, relationally and, and financially independent and mature. Self-sufficiency is something we prize, isn't it? But the problem we see in the church here in Laos this year is that their self-sufficiency made them think that they didn't need Jesus. There's a problem we see here, right? Their self-sufficiency made them think that they did not need Jesus. And, and the scary and the sobering thing about the problem in the Laodicean church is that it can so easily be our problem because we will see that we are not that different to the temptation of self-sufficiency that the Laodiceans fell into. Now, as always, we begin with a description of Jesus, right? Every church in this series of seven is given a description of Jesus that kicks off the message. And here in verse 14, it says, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, Amen, that's a strange one, right? The words of the Amen. Uh, amen is what we usually say at the end of our prayers. Uh, and maybe you've never, uh, you've never understood why you said that, right? Anyone know what the word Amen means? No, anyone? It means truly, right? Or let it be so. So when you say in Jesus' name, truly, let it be so. What I pray for, let it happen. But here we're told that Jesus is called the Amen. Now, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, which is really helpful for understanding why Jesus is the Amen. In, one, in 2 Corinthians 1, it says this, For all the promises of God, all the promises of God, find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That is why it is through Jesus that we utter our Amen to, the, to, to God for His glory. You hear what it says here, right? All, all of God's promises are true in Jesus, right? Jesus is the amen, the yes, the true to all of God's promises and purposes and plans in history, in the present, and in the future. In and through Jesus is God's truth, God's reality. Everything that is significant and substantial and that is spiritually whole and full is found in Jesus, the Amen. Now, Jesus being the Amen is profound stuff and profoundly important for this self-sufficient church to know, as we'll come to see. And then we're told that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. And once again, this is a, a weird one. What, what does it mean, beginning of God's creation? If you ever had a Jehovah's Witness come knocking on your door, they will tell you that Jesus isn't fully God. Right? He's the first created being. He's at best like a demigod. But how do we understand what it means for Jesus to be the beginning of, the, of God's creation? I think we understand this best when we realize that every description given to the churches in chapter 2 and 3 has been borrowed from chapter 1, which is the vision given to all the churches about who Jesus is. And back in chapter 1, verse 5, we've already been told that Jesus is the faithful witness, the, uh, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The opening vision of Revelation reveals Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, the first to be resurrected to bring about the new creation. And at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, do you know what that talks about? It talks about the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. And so what we see in the beginning and the end of Revelation is Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the first, the beginning of the new creation, is the one who will bring in about the fullness of the new creation when he returns. 
And so the creation that's in view in Revelation, I think, is the new creation. It is Jesus who begins it, and it's Jesus who will fulfill it. And in this new creation, Jesus will reign supreme. He will be on his throne, ruling over everyone and everything. And once again, this is profound stuff and profoundly important for the Laodicean church in their struggle to be self-sufficient and Jesus-deficient. Now, let's meet Laodicea, right? Now, when you think about Laodicea, I want us to imagine, you know, New York or perhaps London, Sydney, and maybe even Singapore, right? We'll elevate Singapore to that level, okay? A wealthy city, a major commercial city, a a big hub for trade and communication. Laodicea, back in the first century in Asia, was the the, the banking uh, center for the region, so you might think of it as New York, right? Wall Street, right? In the middle of Asia there. We also learn from history books that Laodicea was like a fashion capital. It was famous for its very soft raven black wool. The sheep of Laodicea ate certain cuts of grass and drank certain kinds of water, and it produces amazingly black-colored uh, wool. Uh, and in Laodicea, you, you dressed to impress. You didn't just get by with Kmart clothing or Pasamalam, you know, uh, knockoffs. Right, you were Donna Karan or Calvin Klein, the way you dressed. Laodicea was also famous for its medical schools. So you might think, you know, um, Cornell or, or Columbia or NYU, or maybe close to home, you might think of the very prestigious UQ, School of Medicine, right? See, in, in Laodicea, through their medical research, they had actually created this, this uh, thing called Phrygium powder, which was famous for being able to cure eye diseases. And they would sell this throughout the region, and they made them rich, and they made them famous. And so we have Laodicea, right? The city of Laodicea is rich, it's prosperous, it was a strong and successful city. It had everything going for it except for two problems, two issues in Laodicea. One, they had frequent earthquakes, and two, they had no water supply. Pretty big problems, right? Now, in terms of earthquakes, in AD 60, the history books tell us that a massive earthquake hit that region, and Laodicea was basically felled. But they were so rich and so successful and so strong that they rejected Roman imperial assistance to rebuild, and they said, we can do it ourselves. And in fact, Laodicea apparently became more beautiful after the earthquake than before it, by their own steam, by their own strength. No water, no problem, right? They would build aqueducts from the surrounding places where there was water. So up north in Hierapolis, there were these uh, hot springs that apparently had some healing properties, right? There was uh, in the, the warm water of Hierapolis. And, and the cold springs of Colossae, they, they would build aqueducts up to 15 kilometers long to pipe this water into Laodicea. Now, the unfortunate thing about this, though, is that the warm water that came and the cold water that came ended up going through this whole pipes, it got mineralized, and it became this lukewarm, uh, pretty much undrinkable, gross water. I guess you could bathe in it, you could cook with it, but when you drank it, you felt like you wanted to spit it out. And we'll get to find out why that's important later on as we look at this passage. But hey, at least they had the money and they had the wisdom, the know-how to be able to do this thing, isn't it? This was this year, the city, rich successful, and very self-sufficient. And clearly, from what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, the church was exactly the same as the city. The church was exactly the same as the city. Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' assessment is, you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And so I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm, heard you, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of, of this saying before, right? To be a lukewarm Christian. Maybe you didn't know it was from Revelation 3, or maybe you didn't know it was from the Bible, but this is where it is, right? Lukewarm. Now, for many years, perhaps like you, I thought that being a lukewarm Christian was kind of being in between, right? You're neither you know, fully hot and on fire and passionate for Jesus, neither are you cold and distant and like an unbelieving Christian, right? You're somewhere in the middle in the Christianometer, right? That's what meaning lukewarm means. But I don't think that's what this verse is saying. Listen very carefully, right? That Jesus says that I would prefer that you were either cold or hot. Now, he can't mean that he would rather that the Christians in the church be either completely like disbelieving and cold towards Jesus or really on fire for Jesus. Nowhere does Jesus ever say that I prefer for Christians to like not care about me, right? And be cold-hearted towards me. You don't think he says that. Jesus isn't comparing between three things. He isn't comparing between cold and lukewarm and hot. He's comparing two things. On one side, cold or hot, they're good, they're useful. Lukewarm, it's not. It's bad. And I think this is where knowing the history about Laodicea can be helpful. I think that Jesus is probably talking about their water situation. Would that you will be like hot like Hierapolis and cold like Colossae, useful and good, rather than be like your city, marked by its lukewarm and disgusting water. Not like the, the, the vomit-inducing, undrinkable water of your city. And I think it makes it even clearer when we get to verse 17. He actually tells us what he means by being lukewarm. Verse 17, Jesus says, For because you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You see, that the church saw themselves exactly the same way that the city saw themselves rich and prosperous and strong and successful. Uh, they're probably, you know, bankers in the city and big business owners uh, in the church, sorry. Uh, people who didn't just own a house, but maybe many investment properties. Uh, they, were, they were rich. They were people of this year. There's something about being rich and being able to own stuff, isn't it? Especially like a house. I remember back in my um, training days as a ministry trainee, uh, I just got married to Faith, and we were living in this one-bedroom, uh, mold-infested house at the back of some really old Greek lady's house. She just boarded up uh, one part of the house, and we lived at the back. And the back fence was McDonald's in Kingsford, right? It used to smell like fried food 24-7. And it was very, um, you always felt whether it was very unstable. Uh, this lady was very old, and we thought she might pass away anytime. Once in a while, we make sure we check to make sure the sound going on there. Uh, and maybe we'd have to move, and she might sell up. Um, and so there would be this instability of having to think about moving all the time. And eventually, a few years later, when we came to Brisbane, we bought a place. And that felt very significant. And it felt very stable until I got my first mortgage statement. And I realized the bank owns pretty much all the house, so I didn't feel very stable after all. Uh, and once in a while, I, I do dream of that day, maybe 20, 25 years later, where I'll pay off the mortgage and it'll finally be my house. That'll be a significant event. That will feel secure and stable, wouldn't it? It would be a huge sense of achievement, I would think, to be able to own my own house. 
you know, for some of us here, and certainly some in the first service, we already have our own house, and we pay it off in full. And perhaps we might even have an investment property or two. If so, well, you're rich. And you manage to achieve something very significant. And, and no doubt, there'll be a great sense of achievement and a security and of stability. Well, for the Laodicean church, they were rich. They probably owned houses and, and horses and, and heaps of clothes. Like I said, they, they dressed to impress, right? They, they didn't just get by on, on hand-me-down clothing from the neighbors or from the op shop. They were fashion-oriented, fashion-forward kind of people. And in that church, kind of like our church, there would have been doctors, dentists, ophthalmologists, maybe their own pharmacies selling frigid powder, right? Rich and successful. Now, which in itself isn't a problem, is it? Because there are plenty of rich and godly people in the Bible, like Abraham and Job, as we'll see in a few weeks' time. And, and in the New Testament, rich ladies like Lydia and Phoebe. There are plenty of rich and godly Christians throughout the centuries of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. But the problem, the big problem of the church in Laodicea was that their riches and their prosperity and their strength and their success made them think that they needed nothing. They didn't need any help from the Roman government, and it would seem like they needed nothing from Jesus. And that's what we see from the context, that they don't see any need for Jesus, which is weird for a church to think that, right? Because you'd imagine that they're a church in Laodicea. I mean, sometime in the past, these people had come to hear the gospel and put their trust in Jesus and call themselves Christians and then gather together as a church, right? Something must have happened that they made them Christians to become a church, but then along the way, it would seem that they got rich and they got successful and then they start to stop needing and wanting anything from Jesus. And we wonder, maybe it's perhaps, you know, uh, they, they felt like, okay, well, God has already blessed me so much and I've got everything, so what, what is there more to need or want? Right? God has already given me all these blessings, so, so I'll have less need for Jesus, less need for God because I've got everything I need from God. Or perhaps they interpreted their situation like many in that time where because they were materially rich and materially blessed, it meant that they were spiritually rich and spiritually blessed. It's a very common way of thinking that the people who are favored by God are those who have a good life. They were living the good life, maybe because they were spiritually rich. Or perhaps, and most likely I think, like many rich and successful people, they have felt like they've gotten everything that they need by their own two hands by their own efforts, by their own hard work, by their own self-sufficiency. So why is there a need for Jesus? Now, by the world's standards, we are a rich church filled with rich people. And we have to admit that. I think you might compare yourself to the people around here, but if you compare yourself to the people around the world and in history, we are rich. There are a whole bunch of strong and successful people here. Or if you are young, you belong to a strong and successful family. Right? We, we get to be here and enjoy thousands of dollars worth of air conditioning and technology that you guys have paid for by your giving. Or you're watching on a flat screen TV, or a $1,000 computer, or a $1,500 iPhone. Somehow phones got more expensive than computers. But that's a story for another time. And then we've got our clothes on 
that definitely costs more than five, ten dollars, and we've got thousands more dollars worth of clothes and shoes in our homes. Not to mention the furniture and the food stocked in our pantry, and we've got the money to go to school and to go to university and, and to go to work and go on holidays. We are rich, filthy rich. You might not feel that way compared to people around you, but most of us are rich. And you know what? Haven't we earned it? We studied hard. We are studying hard now. We work hard. Whatever we gain, we gain for ourselves. And for people like us, isn't there a danger, huge danger to think that we are self Sufficient. Like, we're like the Laodicean church, you think that we've got everything that we need and everything that we want. We're self-sufficient. Why do I need God? Why do I need Jesus? Or maybe I don't need Him as much as I used to think I used to need Him. But you see, the Laodicean church had gotten it so wrong. Jesus, the true witness, remember the true witness, the one who knows truth and tells truth, tells them their true state. He says to them, you are wretched and pitiable. You are poor, blind, and naked. What a shock. Can you imagine? This rich, prosperous, strong, successful church being told, you are wretched and pitiable. You are miserable, horrible, terrible. The opposite of what you think you are. You're not rich, you're poor. You're not well-clothed, you're naked. You don't have eye medicine, you're blind. Right? They thought they were materially rich and spiritually rich maybe, but they were poor. They were spiritually bankrupt. They lacked in true treasures. They, they were blind. They had medicine right, to cure eye disease, but they were spiritually blind. They were naked. They were clothed in fine clothing, the best black wool jumpers they could walk around in and all kinds of other fashion and clothing. But before God, they were naked and exposed. Their, their sin, their shame, their spiritual filth, clear for God to see. This is Jesus' assessment, true assessment of the church. And it's the assessment of those who don't really need Jesus and who don't really have Jesus. Anyone who's like that, likewise, is poor naked and blind because it's only in Christ and only through Christ do we truly become rich it's only in Christ and through Christ do we spiritually see it's only in Christ and through Christ are we covered it's our sin and naked shame covered now the scolding that Jesus gives here is severe isn't it now the words that he uses are so strong I will spit you out of my mouth you are wretched and pitiable but we must realize that this is not the words of final judgment that Jesus is giving here, but that these are the words of fatherly love. These are the words of fatherly love. We see this in verse 19, right? Jesus says to them, to those whom I love, I approve and discipline. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. These are words of fatherly love. Now, if you've been hanging around my house in, uh, in the last two weeks, if you've somehow been like, stalking me or if you've been my neighbor, uh, you would have heard and seen a very irritable and very angry Ben, right? Father Ben uh, has been very angry and irritable in the last few weeks. I'm not sure why, for some reason. I, I've just been very, I, I've been losing my temper at the kids a lot. It's been getting me down quite a bit, actually. Uh, why is it that I keep losing my temper at them? But once in a while, I, I do reflect on the fact that deep down, the reason why I get angry or upset at them 
is because I care for them, right? There are things that they are doing, there are certain attitudes I see, certain behaviors, the way they treat me and Faith and the other sisters, uh, that shows that there's a problem in their relationship with God and with each other, right? I, there is a concern that is causing me to be angry, uh, that they are doing things that will lead them into sin, lead them away from God, lead them into more broken relationships in the home and perhaps even at school. No, I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing. It, it, it's not that irritable, losing temper, Ben kind of fatherly love. But at the heart of it, it's the same thing. He loves even this wretched and pitiable church. And in love, he's scolding them and disciplining them. He, in love, he's calling them out for who they are. Like, look at yourselves, guys, right? This is who you really are. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just scold them and tell them what's wrong with them. He gives them instructions for how to change, how to get back on track. And Jesus' first instruction we see in verse 18 is he, he counsels them to buy, 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 doesn't he? Buy, buy, buy. For a church in a city like Laodicea, they know all about buying, right? And they're a commercial city. You know, at the next Black Friday sale, right? At the next Cyber Monday or, or whatever it is. They'd be out there look, getting their, their, their black jumpers and their, their dresses, their Calvin Klein. Maybe they're at the New York Stock Exchange, right? Or the Laodicean Stock Exchange, right? Buying up the next shares, right? Buy, buy, buy. Because they, they're used to buying. But they've been getting and accumulating and gaining and investing in the wrong things. They had not been buying for themselves the things that truly matter. They had not been buying what Jesus offers. And Jesus counsels them to buy gold that's refined by fire. Right, gold refined by fire, true spiritual riches that comes from Jesus. The things that are pure and holy and good. You heard Sonia read up to us, Ephesians 1, right? Beautiful passage about all the spiritual blessings, all the spiritual treasures that come through faith in Jesus Christ. To be chosen, to be called, adopted, redeemed, justified, forgiven, made holy, given the Holy Spirit, given hope, being transformed looking forward to the glory of God. All the spiritual riches we see in, in the fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the riches of relating to God and to each other properly, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, humility, self-control, those are all gifts. Those are all riches. Come and buy from me those things, Jesus says. Buy from me white garments to clothe yourselves and cover the shame of your nakedness. It is only in Christ that we have our sin, our guilt, our shame removed, right? We, we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, one hymn writer put it this way. I know I'm not a very poetic guy, so let me read a poem for you for the first time in like 10 years. That's what it says. Fallen race in Eden fair, exposed and full of shame, fled we naked from thy sight, Far from thy holy name. Clothe us in your righteousness. Hide filthy rags of sin. Dress us in your perfect garb, both outside and within. You see the offer of Jesus here? Come and get from me the pure and perfect righteousness that will cover your sin and your shame. And finally, he says, Buy from me, self to anoint your eyes. 
right? The, the, not the Phrygian powder that cures eye disease, but self, ointment that will really cure your spiritual blindness. We come to Jesus, and then we see truly, because he's the faithful witness. We will get to understand what it means to, to live in God's world, what it means to relate to God, what it means to be human. And then we can see what life is about, what meaning is about, and what the future holds. Through Christ, we have His Spirit that opens our spiritually blind eyes to see Christ and God and the world and ourselves for who we truly are and to see what we need to become. That's why Jesus says, you know, stop buying. Stop getting, stop accumulating, and stop investing in the things of this world. Stop seeing this creation as all that there is. Come to me, Jesus says, to buy what is true and spiritual and eternal. Buy from the Amen, the beginning of the new creation, the risen, the riches of Christ that carry on into the new creation is what we must have, what we most need to have. Whether we have the riches of this world, whether we have the clothings and the medicines of this world, it doesn't matter as much as having the riches, the, the clothing, and the medicine of Christ. And you know what's so loving about this instruction? Do you know what's so amazing about this? Jesus says, buy, but it's free. All that Jesus wants to give to the church, to us, is free. The gold purified by fire, the clothing that covers our shame and our sin, the self that opens our blind eyes is all free to anyone who wants to receive it. Now, some of you are my Facebook friends, and maybe you saw during the week that I tried to give away stuff on Facebook Marketplace. I've got this old uh, bookshelf that's still really sturdy. It still really works, but I don't need it anymore. I wanted to give it away. And then I've got this 24-inch monitor, full HD, but Zoe, when she was three, was scratching it with you know, keys, so it's all scratched up. That's pretty valuable stuff, I guess. I want to give it away for free, but Facebook Marketplace, did you know, you can't put things up for sale for free. So I put that $1.00 but I said, free to a good home in the description. Now, as you can imagine, there wasn't much of a response. Right? Who wants my rubbish, even for free? Fully understandable. But how could you not want to buy from Jesus what he is selling, especially when it is free? What Jesus is selling to this church in Laodicea is infinitely great. Infinitely and eternally great yet you're able to buy it for absolutely nothing. It's absolutely free. And we might wonder, how can the Laodicean church's response not be great? Would they re reject this offer? How would they go with this instruction to buy, buy, buy from Jesus? Now, their response to Jesus' offer of true riches, true clothing, and true self for blindness would continue to be poor if they do not become zealous for Jesus and if they do not repent of their self-sufficiency. That might be the reason, that will be the reason why they won't buy. And so Jesus tells them, urges them in verse 19, be zealous and be zealous for me. Now zeal is a kind of an old-fashioned word. I'm not sure when's the last time you used the word zeal, except when you read the Bible. Uh, but the word zeal is a really great word, right? It means having a passion for something, right? To, to be excited about, to be engaged with, to, to really want something is to be zealous. The church at Laodicea had lost their zeal 
for Jesus because they had grown their zeal for the world. Right? What the city offered, what the city sold, they grew a passion for. They got really excited about it. They got engaged in it, and they really wanted to buy and get. But the more that they wanted, the more zeal they had for the world, it would seem that their zeal for Jesus got lower and lesser and lesser. Isn't this true for us also? There's only so much zeal going around. There's only so much you can be passionate about, right? Isn't it so tempting for us to, to invest our zeal, direct our zeal towards wanting a, a, a place, a nicer place to live in, or a, a nicer car? Or maybe to be more, have more holidays, to enjoy more hobbies, to have more tech and more fashion, to pay, spend more time and energy right, in our achievements, in our studies, in our sports, in our music, in our career. And so we, we grow zeal for all these things, and slowly but surely, we lose our zeal for Jesus. We grow so much more attached and desirous of the things of this creation that we lose our zeal, our grip, our hold, our desire on the things of the new creation that are found in Christ. And so Jesus, like a really loving father, is scolding the church, perhaps scolding us, and saying to us, repent, change, for goodness sakes, change. Change the way you think and change the way you live. Turn away from all those things of the world, from the zeal and the passion of the things that don't last, of the things that are turning you away from me, and turn back to me, be zealous for me. Now, the final instruction we see here in verse 20 isn't really an instruction, but a beautiful, beautiful invitation. Probably is the favorite verse I've read in a long time, especially now that I understand it more clearly. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard this verse. And I'm sure almost always in the context of evangelism, right? We tell people that Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. If you would just receive him and believe in him, then you'll be saved. Now, that's true in terms of the invitation that Jesus is calling up for people who are not believers to come and trust in him. But in the context of this verse in Revelation 3, it is not an invitation to unbelievers. It's an invitation to lukewarm, self-sufficient Christians who have lost their zeal for Jesus, right? That's what it is. And so amazing is it that we see that Jesus has not lost his zeal for the church. You see that it's amazing that Jesus has not lost his zeal for people who feel so sufficient that they see no need for Jesus. He seeks out the one who does not see a need for him and who has lost their zeal for him. You know, Jesus has come to the house of this church, to the house of all, every single one of them, and he's knocking at the door, standing there knocking at the door, and he's asking, can I be let in? Will you let me in to have fellowship with you again? Let me phrase it another way. Jesus, the eternal God, the almighty King, the end-time judge is so zealous for us that he's come to us, to our door, 
And he's knocking. And he's asking us to open the door to him. Have you heard something so ridiculous as that? That Jesus would do this. This is amazing love. And this is amazing grace. Now this is a verse that I really needed to hear this week. In the last few weeks, I have been feeling quite down and, and maybe even I've been struggling, right, in my zeal. I hear this verse and I wonder why would Jesus bother to keep pursuing me and be zealous for me? And yet he does. What amazing love and grace he's shown me. Shown us. And the question is, will you let him in? He's standing there right now, knocking on the door of your heart, asking, will you let him in? Now, perhaps, maybe you've never let him in before. Maybe you're listening here today, and you've never let Jesus into your life, into your heart before. Well, for the first time today, listen to his voice. Open the door to Jesus. Let him in. Believe in him and receive from him what he's offering you. Right? Receive from him what is free, the infinite riches of the spiritual blessings that are found in Christ. Or maybe you're sitting here today, you're listening, and you know you've drifted from Jesus. Maybe you have become self-sufficient in many ways. You become reliant on someone or something else, or you just rely on yourself, on the work of your own two hands. Maybe you know that you haven't really needed or wanted Jesus for quite some time. For whatever reason, you have lost your zeal, well, today, maybe for the first time in a long time, listen to Jesus' voice and open the door of your heart and of your life to him. Invite him back in. Let him take that rightful place in your life. Enjoy the fellowship with Jesus and the blessings of Jesus again. But perhaps maybe you're not in danger. Perhaps maybe you're going really, really well and Jesus is right where he needs to be. He's never left your heart. You are close to him. You're walking with him. That is amazing. I am jealous. But if that's you, keep it up. Keep Jesus close. Keep your zeal for him. Never let that go. Keep reminding yourself of what you have when you have Christ. You have everything. So stick with Jesus. Now let's finish things up by looking at the promised blessings for those who conquer. Today, for Laodicea, the problem that needs conquering is the, the, the sin, the problem of self-sufficiency that causes people to live as if they don't really need Jesus. Self-sufficiency is terrible. It is, it's worse than having nothing, I think. Having everything which makes you think that you don't need Jesus is worse than having nothing. Because anything that leads you away from Jesus leads to the worst most miserable and wretched state. Because in Jesus, we have everything. The promise for those who conquer is that we'll get to sit with Jesus on his throne, the throne of his Father. Can you imagine that? To sit on the throne with Jesus, the one who is our man, who is truth, who is reality, who is the beginning of the new creation, the fulfillment of the new creation, means that everything in the new creation is now ours and forever ours. That's what we get. That's what we'll be sufficient in if we have Jesus. But if we are self-sufficient, we give up on all that. Don't do that. Conquer self-sufficiency. 
Now, as we finish this sermon series in this uh, first three chapters of, the, of, of, of Revelation, let me remind us that Jesus wrote a message to each of the seven churches for all the churches to listen to. And it won't be that we will struggle with each of the problems of each of the seven churches in the same way at the same time. So I think it will be really helpful for us to go back and review what we've learned over this series and to consider which of the, the struggles and the sins and the problems and the temptations we both most need to fight in our lives right now and conquer. Conquer those areas. Respond with faith to what God says and, and repent of whatever sins there are because as we repent as we trust in Jesus again, as we live by his word, we are conquering. And Jesus promises that we are going to make it to the end. We are going to make it. And there's nothing more important than that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks for your amazing love for us, for Jesus' amazing love for us. We thank you for the wonderful image that you've given us that Jesus is right now standing at our door. He's calling out to us, knocking on the door, asking for us to open, to let him in, to renew our zeal for him, to want so much to be in fellowship with him, to want so much to receive, to buy from him the riches of Jesus himself, our King, our Savior to buy from Jesus every spiritual blessing, every riches, the clothing that covers our sin and shame that makes us right before you, to get from Jesus spiritual eyes that see truth and reality now and forever. We thank you for Jesus' so amazing offer, especially for those of us who have felt a lack of zeal, who have been drifting away from Jesus. We thank you so much that he is so gracious, he is so kind, he is so good to us. So help us to respond. Renew our zeal. Help us to repent from the way that we've so chased after the things of this world, the things, the achievements, the stability, the security, the significance that's in the world, that's outside of Christ. And help us to turn to Jesus for all that we need. We thank you for this series of sermons, for this word from Revelation for the way it's, it's helping us to want to conquer so that we'll make it to the end. And we pray this knowing that you have already conquered in Christ, through Christ, that Christ himself has conquered. So help us to conquer in him. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.